How do you like to be introduced? However I like. Okay. Not too much. Not too much fanfare? Oh, no. Fanfare is okay? Fanfare is good, okay. Okay, Lindsay Davis has written 19 novels, beginning with The Course of Honor, the love story of the Emperor Vespasian and Antonia Kynes. Her best-selling mystery series features laid-back first-century detective Marcus Didius Falco and his partner Helena Justina, plus friends, relations, pets, and bitter enemy the chief spy. Their books are translated into many languages and serialized on BBC Radio 4. She's a past chair of the Crime Writers Association and vice president of the Classical Association. She's won the CWA. Ellis Peters' historical dagger, the dagger in the library, and the Sherlock Holmes Award for Falco as best comic detective. She was born in Birmingham and now lives in London. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I'd like to talk about your genre crime fiction, yes. historical crime fiction, is that yes. what you call it? I would, yes. Yeah? I think it was really invented or reinvented by Ellis Peters with the Brother Cadfile series. My books, I always say, are not quite like hers. Originally, because I was the second one who came along, I was compared to her very much, but she was writing about a monastery and I was writing about the, the Romans, so there's more jokes and more sex in my <laughs> But she was a wonderful woman and would have done both had it been appropriate, I'm sure. Did you know her? I met her as a result of having written. My very first one was sent to her to have a, a jacket quotation, we hoped, and she wrote me the most wonderful one, saying she'd never done a jacket quotation before, but she would do one for me. So that stood me in good stead for years. Oh, lovely, and yeah. I thanked her, of course. And I did get to meet her, and we, we were on the same wavelength very much. How do you mean the same wavelength? Well, we thought the same about life and about writing especially. We had the same sort of attitude. And, of course, you know what my next question is. Yes. <laughs> what on. is What is that attitude? Well, we were professionals. We both wrote because we had to write. It's part of our own psyche that we couldn't stop. And when Alice Peters finally found she couldn't write anymore, she just turned over and died, really. She wrote me one very sad letter where she said she, she was struggling with her last book. And I knew, and, and within a few months, she, she had no reason to live then. Mm. Uh, we thought the same about men. She liked my hero. I liked hers. Uh, okay. How, how is that about men, and what... Uh well, we, we approve of good men. They can, ha they can have a lively side to them, but men who men you can trust in so the long run, men, men who are doing right ethically. So you're not attracted to the bad boys? Well, yes, but they have to be bad boys who aren't that bad when it comes to the crunch, really. I wouldn't call Falco a good boy. Okay. But a bad boy who's, who's bad for the, the whole purpose of being bad, no. Right. And now this is what you look for in a, in a, uh, a hero in your novels. What about real life? In a detective story, as in real life, you look for someone who will fight for what's right and what's just, even if everybody else, including the establishment, doesn't want him to do and that's that's really the classic gumshoe role isn't it mm. when the politicians and the police are corrupt yet nonetheless this lone man foolishly struggles to do what's proper 
as a backbone. And yes. You've sort of gone, started down the, the path of describing uh, what you look for or what you build upon in a detective. What I'm interested in, we, first of all, we've, we've talked about the... Uh, and we can, I can ramble on here as much as and you can oh, so too. I shall interrupt you briskly <laughs> in my English fashion. It's safe more for me to interrupt All right. purpose. Great, okay. Um, what I'm interested in getting at is, well, first of all, the, the genre, to get a, a good understanding of the genre. What about any kind of historical antecedents? Does anyone stand out as someone who may have cut the path Way back? For me personally, yeah. or within the genre. Well, both. Well, the genre, the genre is interesting because there are various detectives who have become historical. Lord Peter Whimsey, even Sherlock Holmes, we are seeing them now as historical figures, even if they were not when they were written. So in that sense, I think there is, there is a strong movement to set mysteries in the past for readers or for readers to find mysteries that occur in the past well look at look at sorry look at uh, uh, the Da Vinci Code I mean that's yes, just yes. I, I have to confess I did not read the Da Vinci Code because when it reached me it was badly written and what I look for in a book is for it to be well written I read <laughs> the first chapter and that was enough for me subject matter wasn't my, my subject matter anyway but and still I, when you think of it though yes it's, 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 it's yeah it's one of the biggest best sellers and yes. it's Historical sort of detectives. It is, indeed. Think of a, a, a really good British um, historical detective that influenced me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, Josephine Taze, the daughter of time, I don't know if you know that. It's set in, well, for her, the modern day, although by now, of course, that's, that's um, aged a little. And it's about a policeman who is in hospital, so he, he can't get out and about very much, and he gets interested in the story of... King Richard III and whether he was or was not a villain and whether he did or did not kill the princes in the town so um, she was she even predates Ellis Peters I think Cutfile was the product of Ellis Peters uh, later life she wrote as Edith Paget as straight historical novels first but so when was she writing in the 50s in 40s the 40s I think I read them in the 50s, 60s, and they were classics by then. That, that's about as far back as it goes then, you, th you think? I think so, though if, if you look at the history of the detective novel going right back to Wilkie Collins, The, the Woman in White and the Moonstone, Moonstone if yeah. we read them now, they are historical detective stories in a way. Even though you say they were written sort of contemporary? Yes. One, one book that immediately comes to mind, again, another kind of genre buster, if you will, is uh, The Name of the Rose. <laughs> now you've got me again because that's another book I started thinking it would be wonderful and I hated it and never finished it. You either <laughs> like it or you can't be bothered. Perhaps because there were very few women in it and the, the few who made scanty appearances didn't have a very nice time. And I believe very strongly that an author should remember that at least 50% of their readers are going to be women and more possibly many more yeah. in fact but yeah. the world is composed of 50% women roughly and so to write a novel which is only about men seems to me foolish but what would I know I'm only a best-selling author with a lot of men and women who read my books 
Well, maybe it's because he was Italian. Or is that too much of a stereotype? (laughs) My Italians do, anyway. Yeah. So, okay, we've got... uh, We've got an idea of when the genre began. Can you give us then your take on what it takes to write a really brilliant historical detective novel? I'm hoping I have done it, done my best. I think you start from the fact that it's a novel, full stop. You write it as you would write a novel using the same skills that you would use and it's just that the details are old details rather than modern. If, for example, you're describing a street, you use the same kind of things that you would use. Sight, sound, smell. I'm famous for my smells because I think if you went back to the past, that's what you would notice, that it was a lot smellier than that or different. And you have to concentrate on your characters and your dialogue and your narrative and your plot, mm-hmm. because plot is so important in a mystery, in exactly the same way as if it was set in modern times. And people write to me, how do you handle the history as though it's something different? Well, it, it's, it's not really. It's not something you put great globs of history in, or if you do, it will read very poorly. The idea is to present your chosen period and make it seem normal. So, although with the Romans, there are some aspects of Roman life that are very strange to us. The ones I always think about are slavery and gladiating, which are alien to us, and we we would hate them. There were Romans who hated both, in fact, and I tried to say that. But when when Farku is talking about either of those, or, or Helena, his girlfriend, they have to speak of it in a way that explains it to readers, so in that sense there is there is a technical speciality, mm. but as though it's a normal part of life. In a way, it's a sort of a social history, precise detail on how they would have lived their lives. Yes, and that people enjoy that hugely. I do sometimes do political history as well, because the kind of books that I'm writing, the politics is important, the, the the fact that it was to some extent a tra- transitional period between the chaos of the what I'll call the I Claudius period to help people get get to grips with it, mm. mad emperors who virtually destroyed the Roman world through their madness, mm. and then Vespasian comes along and he's he's middle class and the son of a tax collector, which rather appeals to me because I'm middle class and not the, not the daughter of a tax collector, but I've been a civil servant myself. So he's the man who, in effect, makes the trains run on time. They had trains, and he, he gathers money Like together, Mussolini. Like Mussolini, exactly. Um, he, he has the great census, which, in fact, is not simply to count heads, but it's to get money out of everybody. And then he rebuilds Rome and starts the golden age of the Roman Empire. So I have to talk about the politics. And... There are other aspects of it which I talk about because they have resonance with modern life. The Roman Empire was an empire. We are we are living in an age when imperialism is something we're thinking about very much. And there were things that the Romans did with their barbarians that we're doing with our, if we can call them that, barbarians too. Um, it's it's a way of, of comment and adding depth to the novel, really. There's frequently a comparison between the decline of 
the Roman Empire and what's happening right now in the United States. Yes, we should be rather worried, I think, anyone with a knowledge of history. But then I think what's going wrong in the world today is because politicians very rarely have a knowledge of history. Or they, they wouldn't dream of, for example, going into Afghanistan. They would know it's been done before <laughs> and was a total disaster. And why do they think they're able to do it? Just because they have bigger guns? No. With your knowledge of uh, the Roman Empire as it is, I wonder if you have some ideas on how they may have avoided what happened, and so you could use your your books as a, a warning. Well, I hope I don't, I don't write them as polemics, but I do hope that I can occasionally point out things that may be useful. The way the Roman Empire worked, it was enormous. It went, it went from Scotland to Libya, and from Spain to Syria, and. The only reason it wasn't bigger was that they they felt it was not practical to make it bigger. And they pinned this down with maybe 20 legions of soldiers at the most, and some provinces had no soldiers in them. How, how many soldiers in a legion? 6,000, I think. Don't quote me on that. I always have to look it up. Not many, anyway, considering that their borders Five. were full of, of dangerous areas like Scotland mm-hmm. <laughs> and East Germany, where people did not approve of the Romans, didn't want to be Romanized. The way that they did, the way they were successful, was that they insisted that the Roman Emperor had to be acknowledged, and the fact that in Judea that people resisted that is why Christianity rose up and became, became troublesome to them. But generally, they would then let people have their own gods. They didn't try to overturn it. They brought aspects of what the Romans considered to be civilization, and most famous, most famously, this was the baths. They went to Britain and said, "We'll build you a forum, and we'll put a bathhouse in it, and you can have a warm bath and talk in a civilized fashion down in the city rather than up in a hillfall." And it worked. But they weren't oppressive unless they had to be. Very, very rarely they were, and that meant to things like the Boudicca revolt, both Birdseer, as we used to call her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally, they, they seem to have a much better attitude than we have when we go into places we think we're going to bring civilization to, where we take nothing. They didn't impose anything on, on the No, only, other only the general rule that you are now Roman and you have to not insult the emperor. Yeah. Well, plus they brought uh, plumbing and roads. They plumbing, they brought roads, they brought exotic goods, they brought foods and mm-hmm. clothing that people had never had before. Wine was something that was welcomed very much in Northern <laughs> Europe. <laughs> God bless the Romans. Yes. And they, they went, of course, they didn't just go because they thought it was a good thing to do. They went to get stuff when they went to Britain it was because they thought there was gold and silver there in fact there was much less yeah there was a lot of tin wasn't there there was a lot of tin which wasn't quite the same yeah what is it about Rome and the Roman Empire that lends itself so well to your detective writing Um, I actually I read English at university not even history though I always say if you read English and at all properly how to find things out you can do anything you want 
there's a, a sudden hush when I say this to people about the discipline. I did some Latin at school and in fact carried my Latin through because it, I went to Oxford and in those days you had to do an entrance exam part of which was a translation paper. And my English degree also included some Latin because it was in the old days when they wanted to show where English came from, so part of that was doing Latin. I don't consider myself to be a specialist at all in any way. Anything I've done, I've done as an individual, just seeking information and using it. Why the Romans? I, I prefer the Romans to, say, the Greeks, who would be the, the other great ancient civilization to write about because of their attitude to women really the Romans took their women to dinner the Greeks left them behind in the women's quarters and that's very important to me. Why are they good for detective stories? My starting point is the city a huge, biggest city in the ancient world, full of people on the make, which is good news for a detective writer of any kind Trying to, uh, trying to fool people and themselves, trying to fool themselves, sometimes doing it legitimately, but quite often not. Yeah. Which, which is always good news for a, an investigator. There was uh, quite a bit of crime then. There was enormous amounts of crime. The Romans themselves joked that a wise man wrote his will before he went out to dinner because he was so likely to be mugged in the streets coming home. They had street lights, but the burglars used to douse them so that they could go about their business. They had a police force, but it had been set up as a fire brigade and only became the police force because while they were roaming the streets sniffing for smoke, they kept running into so many burglars. And the vigilies, as they were called, do feature in my stories. They're sort of vigilies procedurals. The first fire brigade procedural in history I have written. There, is there history? Is there written history and examples of the court cases that you're able to kind of sift through? There's a few, yes. I've, I've done a a court book, a legal book, with Falco actually being the lawyer. But I find, find it's quite hard to get as much information as I want to make it, to make me feel sure that I've, I've got it accurately. There are enough hints, and the duty of a fiction writer, of course, is then to invent if needs be. You are allowed to. It's not like being an academic. So, uh, do you get a lot of interesting criminal uh, ideas from the reading that you've done that you can then sort of take? I get some. Um, they, in the first century, which is the period I'm writing about, we, ha we have some surviving Latin and some of it is satire. There are two famous satirists, Marshall and Juvenal, and I use them. And occasionally they will refer to the kinds of criminals that there are. There's, there's a famous satire which describes standing on the street corner and seeing people who are up to no good. Actors who have, have been bribed and famous women poisoners. The, the Romans had a horror of being poisoned. Probably that it was undetectable. They, they didn't have the forensic tricks that we've got. Makes it easier for me in a way, because I don't have to know about the forensics. I don't have to know about guns either, which I'm really glad about. But also it makes it harder because there's only a limited way of, of murdering somebody. And what do I do if somebody's poisoned? It's all a bit hit and miss. Oh, he looked as if he was poisoned. He was frothing in the mouth, that sort of thing. It's, it's all a bit crude. But that's how it must have been. Lindsay Davis, your latest novel in the uh, Falco series is Saturnalia. It's um, Roman Christmas, really. It is the origins of our Christmas, though without the baby Jesus, of course. It has 
lots of things that we recognise. It has people decorating their homes with green boughs and strings of lights, which in my book occasionally set houses on fire. It has people giving each other gifts, traditional gifts, little statues that nobody quite knows what they are. It's a season of misrule. Masters will serve their slaves, and slaves will be the master of the day. There's lots of people dressing up and lots of noise and terror in the streets. I've covered that as pretty well a party every day, including the Vigilese Saturnalia Drinks Party, which is the office party from hell, really. <laughs> uh, but I also, I've, I've done the darker side of it, because just as at Christmas time now, we have to think about the homeless who, who are left out of all the merriment and feasting. I've talked about the runaway slaves who are on the outside of society, have nowhere to go or suffer horribly, whether they're found or whether they're not. And so there's a, a very dark passage about them too. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, in our interview uh, sort of the standard structure that goes into yes. the writing. Yes. Uh, I want to turn to that and uh, look, for example, at uh, plot progression. Uh, what kinds of techniques would you use uh, to move the action along? kill somebody else off is the best way. Um, this, the structure of a mystery is a very good discipline for a writer, I think, a novelist. You have to have a crime, and traditionally it's a murder or something that looks like a murder. The mystery might be, was it suicide or was it accident? Um, and and then, who did it? Yeah. Then you have the investigation, and that that's really a good way of bringing in new characters who who might be witnesses, who might be suspects. I I quite enjoy that really. Um, I use my dialogue skills, I hope, on that. And Falco comes over as the person who's judging them, so we are very much with him during that. And then hopefully you have your resolution at the end and your explanation. I did write one book, um, Ode to a Banker, which is a take on the traditional mystery. It has a body in the library to start with, and at the end, everybody's assembled in that library, and Falco works out in front of all of them in an Agatha Christie kind of way mm. who, who did it. I found that incredibly difficult, actually. Usually I do it much more simply than that. And, uh, it was a very hard scene to write, though people did like it in the end. I don't know whether I'll ever do another one like that. Uh, what about uh, foreshadowing? Do you do you use uh, you know, Chekhov talked about putting a if you see a gun on the wall in? Uh <laughs> yes, I'll use that. Not a gun, though, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what would you use? Well, whatever. I've, I've written nearly eighteen. In fact, I'm on halfway through number nineteen now. So. Um, I have done foreshadowing. The one I'm writing, a crocodile escapes because it's set in Egypt and kills somebody. And I have an early scene where we see the crocodile Falco, in fact, takes his children to the zoo. And uh, much is said about what crocodiles might do if they escaped and how fast they can run and how strong they are. And that's foreshadowing mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. I just left it at the moment where so that the crocodile is out and Falco hears him coming, so that, that was a bit of a dramatic moment to have come away, really. 
thinking of Peter Pan. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yes, they don't have clicking, uh, ticking clocks, unfortunately. <laughs> or I do that. I do do illusions like that. Mm. I've done the one where Falco is offered the Indiana Jones job of finding um, the Ark of the Covenant, and Falco says, "No, you want a real hero for that." It's just a sort of little illusion that I make. Mm-hmm. Some people miss it, but those who do like it. Yeah, what about um, making promises that then are later kept? Do you do or not kept? Do you uh, sort of do that with the... I, I am of... I don't know that I've, I've ever consciously done that, but I, I would stand by my promises. I believe in the... Um, detective, detection clubs rules which are that you don't have twins and that nobody knows about and, uh, anything that is needed to reach the solution has to be put before the audience the readers in the same way as it's put before the detec- detective himself I would never write a book where the detective in fact did it at least I don't think I would Mm-hmm. I hate those. Like, you feel cheated. Yeah. So, how does that work then? You you basically want the reader to... To say. feel that they might be able to solve it. I, I actually don't want them to be able to solve it. I don't want it to be obvious what has happened. And often I do that by not knowing the answer myself as I write. So there's absolutely no chance of anybody guessing it. Um, I will try to write in red herrings, I'll have an obvious suspect who in fact didn't do it, but of course the intelligent reader learns that that's your method of doing it, so the intelligent reader will know that that's probably not going to be the answer, they they might look around other possible murderers What's the best plot twist you've ever come up with? I think it's in Poseidon's Gold, which was the fifth book, and it's about statues. The Romans were art connoisseurs, and they had a relationship with the art of ancient Greece, which they mostly they plundered and took to Italy if they approved of it. And there is there is a statue in it, which is the subject of a very complicated plot. And at the end, Falco thinks that he and his father, who's an antique stealer in the Lovejoy style, have managed to swindle people who were trying to do them down and have come into possession of a very valuable statue. And in fact, they are cheated and it turns out not not to be right. And uh, there are a whole lot of twists at the end of that book with them being very miserable and thinking they they lost all their fortunes and then thinking they're going to make a huge fortune and at the very end they are heartbroken because it's it's not a real it, the statue's not right they've been done down by a, a sculptor and that I think was one of one of my best there's another one where Falco and his brother-in-law go to Libya in search of a herb which was much regarded in the ancient world, Silphium it's called, and it's become extinct because of over-harvesting. Nero had the last shoot and ate it, 
instead of planting it again. Does that explain why he went bonkers? It could well do, it could well do. Um, and they go to Libya and they find a plant and they go to sleep. Again, it's one where they, they go to sleep that night thinking they're going to be rich and famous forever and ever and the goat comes along and eats their plant. Um, I suppose I enjoy giving him a miserable time. <laughs> Lindsay Davis, you talked a bit about Ellis Peters. Would she be your favourite or do you have other favourites or recommended reads? I, I'm not a huge fan of Brother Cadfile among Ellis Peters' work really. I preferred her earlier, more serious historical novels which she wrote as Edith Pargeter and funnily enough she, those were what she was most proud of. I also, uh, in her oeuvre, I, I like the autobiographical novels she wrote with enormous passion. She was, she was hugely left-wing in her youth and wrote about the Spanish Civil War and, and things like the fall of Malaya in a way that you wouldn't expect from the uh, perceived gentle author of Brother Cadfile. So if I, if I was recommending detective stories, I don't think Cadfile is where I would go. I would recommend people who write good novels. Ian Rankin, John Harvey are, are great favourites of mine, Peter Robinson, people like that, who write what are often billed as very gritty stories, and yet they, they have more of a heart than you would expect in fact. I quite like P.D. James, though she's a little austere for me. I used to like Liza Cody, who, who wrote about lower-class people being detectives. Hmm. She had a woman wrestler she wrote about who was really good fun. What about Dostoevsky, uh, you know, in terms of the greatest crime novel? Yeah, he, he wrote a good book, didn't he? <laughs> I, I have read Dostoevsky, I can't pronounce him, but yes, I wouldn't, wouldn't put him in the same vain as popular fiction. I think no. popu popular fiction is the lighter sort of thing, really. It's something you can read as escapism, yes, yes, take you away from the troubles of the world. To me, it's lighter, and my books are, are funny, even lighter still. Are you happy with what you've produced? Yes, very. I'm proud of it. Absolutely. I'm most proud of The Course of Honour, which is not a detective story, it's a serious love story and a discussion of who should be our rulers and what their qualities should be really. It's I, Claudius, seen through the eyes of a woman as well and a slave. So that was a completely different take. But I am proud of Falco in ways that I haven't expected sometimes. I've not expected that what readers would latch onto hugely is the, the friends and family, the, the personal life of Falco. I could almost write Falco novels without having murders in them, mm. which were I allowed to do it by my publishers and would suit me more, really. They'd be just social histories of, of Roman people. And when I started, that wasn't my intention. I gave him a huge Italian family because I thought that would be a good joke. You Philip Marlowe has no background, has no family at all, so mine is going to be Italian and that would be what made him different. He'd have this vast social acquaintance who harass him on every side. Um, and that's, that's become what many readers read the books for. And he's huge fun to do as mm -hmm. well. That's obviously something that suits, suits me as a writer.
Barbara Tuckman is coming to mind. Is it? Is there a historian that that you turn to uh, with pleasure? I read um, myself for for private reading. I don't read as many mysteries or as many historical novels as I used to because it's now it's work, and so I I look elsewhere. I read historical biography of all sorts. Actually, what I've enjoyed most recently was a, was a novel. It was a novel by Robert Harris, not one of his Roman books, but The Ghost, which is a satirical take on Tony Blair. I did like that. Are you tempted to move out of the genre and into non-fiction, let's say, about this time? Because you must have an extraordinary expertise. I'm very diffident about it because I wasn't trained as any kind of historian specifically as an ancient historian or an archaeologist and I've also been always been very diffident because I do what I do and I don't know if it's what the academic discipline would approve of I'm tempted to show that my range as a novelist is wider and to maybe go back to my chosen period which surprisingly perhaps was the English Civil War 17th century Cavaliers and Roundheads. You're, you're um, chosen? Yeah, if that's what I wanted to write about, and so maybe one day I will. Maybe one day fairly soon I will. <laughs> Can't say no more on that subject. My ideal life then would be that I would slow down on the Falco series because I've written a lot. It's, yeah. a long, it's not the longest series in the world, but I'm, I'm approaching 20, and I will certainly do 20, I think, because that's such a lovely round number. Mm. And then what I... Ideally, what I would do would be that I would write something different and then write a Falco. So I'd keep it going, but at a more gentle pace. And I think that would be good for me in every sense, that Falco's would be better, because I'd be refreshed. I used to write one a year, and that was very hard. You don't want to give up, you don't want to end it though, you do want to go back then? I, I'm happy writing it, and people want more. And so long as I have ideas, it's it's wonderful to do it's just magic to, to earn your living by first of all the research I do enjoy the research finding things out getting an idea for a story maybe going to a different country which I might not have gone to were, were I not doing this series I would never have gone to Syria I would never have gone to Libya so I, what do you do when you go there do you sort of breathe in the atmosphere <laughs> yes Yes, I go. I don't go for very long usually, especially frightening countries like that. Um, but there are things you you get from it that you wouldn't expect. Like what? Well, even when I went to Rome for the first time, the colour of the the quality of the light you can't research that. The way the sun bounces off the stone, the way street life works which is probably how it worked 2,000 years ago as well, the, how people jostle one another and eat, eat in the streets. You get that. What about going to the library? Do you go to various libraries and archives and places like that? Or? To some extent, compared with, say, the 17th century, there's not as much library stuff, but I use museums. I, I look at the archaeological sections of museums, and I've always enjoyed that long before I was writing the Falco. So would you, so you would go into these museums and take notes on the pottery, for example? Yes, or yes. Interesting. And, and look for things. It can get you into trouble 
the, the most difficult thing that I ever did was that I'd gone to the British Museum, which of course has a wonderful <laughs> collection of stuff. And they're not too happy in the country, sir. We want to give back to Italy, but we're looking after it for them. They, they have so much, they, they, <laughs> they couldn't possibly take care of it, probably, we say. And they had a case that was from the first century, which is what, what I'm writing about, and it was domestic implements, things people had in their kitchens, including a cheese grater. And I use this cheese grater in the famous scene where Falco's apartment falls down and he retrieves very little, but one of the things he retrieves is this cheese grater. And then a few years afterwards, I went to an exhibition at the British Museum that was about Sir William Hamilton, who brought a lot of stuff, but he, he really founded the collection. He was interested in volcanoes, and he brought a whole lot of, of vases back, so this exhibition was laid out. And they had gone back to when he first brought his material and reassessed some of it. One of the things they had reassessed was my cheese grater, which was now labelled Etruscan from the tomb of the 5th century, which meant Falco couldn't have had it in theory. The good thing about writing a series is you can amend things that aren't right. So I then wrote a scene in which Falco still has the cheese grater, and he's using it when he baths his baby, and the baby is giving it as a toy to distract her. He's splashing water everywhere with his cheese grater in a cute way, which people like. And Falco says, well, my father gave us the cheese grater, and he's, he's an antique dealer. Knowing him, he probably robbed it from an Etruscan mm. Oh, got out of that one. <laughs> the thrill of living your life this way, is it... Uh, <laughs> It's like living in another, that world, is it, it must be. It is to some extent. Less so now. When I first started, everywhere I went, Falco was at my shoulder. It is part of becoming very professional, is that now he's there when I want him, when I go into my office, yes. But, but in between, he's, he's not such a constant presence. Little things would always make me think, oh, that would be good in a Falco story. And I'll mentally make a note. Just in closing, uh, perhaps could you give us some lessons from Roman life that may help on both the individual and the societal level? I think on the individual level, I would refer people to the Roman idea of marriage, which seems to me to sum up everything. They did have wedding ceremonies which people could have and which are the origin to some extent of, of what we have at weddings. But the essence of a Roman marriage was simply that two people decided to live together. You didn't have to have a ceremony, you didn't have to have a written contract. You just came together and lived together and if one of you decided that they couldn't do it anymore, you were divorced with no fuss either way. And it seems to me that that would be a very good model for everybody. Well, don't we, don't we live that these days now? Well, we do. We've, we're coming closer to it. Um, so, hopefully... But it's not such a... I mean, it, it, going through a divorce is, is clearly a, a personal yes. catastrophe. And they, as we do, had to have 
arrangements made for the property, especially where there were children, and they would do that. But this this idea that it's two people who actually want to live together, I I, I think is good. Yeah, I'm surprised actually because you had to go through centuries where it was all planned yeah. and it had nothing yeah. to do with love, and, and the women in particular didn't have any choice about it. So it's good to remember that it goes back that far. Um, and on, on a wider level, I think it will be what we've already discussed, really, the, the political side of empire and what your responsibilities are if you go into a foreign country, that you shouldn't destroy everything and give nothing back, really. I would like to see us in Iran, for example, building roads, and the Romans at least did build the roads, building hospitals, building schools, giving them something that would make them not want to have a civil war because they wouldn't want to lose the pleasures of life that had been given to them. Mm. With their assistance, and that's the other thing that the Romans did, they, they cooperated with the local populace, and taught them to run themselves rather than just having two layers, one of which was the Romans in charge and one of which was the subjective people. We could learn from them. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've, we've learned a lot from you today. Thank you. I hope so. I've been speaking with uh, Lindsay Davis, who is the author of Saturnalia, the latest in the Falcon series.